0: Welcome to the podcast for 1715, Looking at the Past, with Dr. Aaron Morton in the Department of History at the University of New Brunswick. This week's topic is on tourism, vision, and photography. Many scholars who have studied tourism uh, since around the late 90s at least, have attempted to frame understandings of the process of tourism, the experience of tourism, including the experience of those who travel to, to become tourists, and those who experience tourism as hosts, so those who host tourists in their home communities. Many of these scholars have argued that vision is a crucial and central component of understanding the tourism experience. One of these scholars, who's really well known, uh, named John Urie, has written a book that's been published now three times, there's three editions of the same book. The title is The Tourist Gaze. And I wanna start with Urie's concept of the of the tourist gaze because I think it provides a really important entry point into thinking about tourism through its visual manifestations such as photography. So when we think about tourism and we think about the activities that tourists engage in when they are touring a place, one really common experience is to take a snapshot, to take a photograph. In earlier periods of history, when cameras, you know, especially phone cameras, things that we're really used to in contemporary society, just being able to take out your phone and take a photo of something, when uh, those that type of fast photography was less technologically available, Often what people would do is they would purchase postcards with a photograph of, you know, a site or an event already printed on the the postcard to send home. So vision and tourism and then the snapshot photography, uh, these are really important processes to thinking about visuality. Yuri, however, what he argues that I think is really important is that there's nothing inevitable or natural, as he puts it, about this organizing power of vision. So in other words, there's nothing natural or inevitable about the ways in which tourists participate in tourism through visual experiences and technologies such as photography. What Yuri writes, and I'm quoting him here, is that there was a centuries-long struggle for visuality to break free from other senses with which it had been entangled. Here we begin by examining the history of visuality and what is meant by the idea of seeing, and in turn being seen, and how vision became the dominating sense in modern societies. We pay particular attention to the profusion of new visual technologies in urban spaces as they relate to tourism. He then says that part of the goal of his book is to link vision and the tourist gaze with the medium of photography, the most important technology for developing and extending the tourist gaze. So what Yuri writes is that the connection between tourist photography and power, so meaning that the tourist photographer and the local photographic subject, whether that's a person or a place or an event, that is an interaction with power. So according to Yuri, and this is, you know, when he first kind of started articulating this concept of the tourist gaze, this was in 1990, what he says is that uh, there's a tendency to endow the tourist behind the camera with a lot of power. The tourist gaze, uh, in turn, is objectified through the camera, so through the lens, and then the camera itself produces a commodity object, which is the photograph. And of course, he's talking in a historical period, even you know, even 30 years ago, um, or 40 years ago. The tourist photog- photographic experience, as I said, it's a lot. It was a lot different, right? So you would take an, a, a camera take a photo and then still print and develop that photo to save it in a photographic album. Uh, for myself, I'm almost 40 years old and I you know I printed and saved photographs and photo albums for the majority period of my life. the the minimal period of my life is the experience of photographing things with a phone and just keeping things in a digital format. so that's that's why Yuri has republished this text a couple of times because the process of photography has changed so much but the basic concept, that he's still working with, uh, which is the power that is imbued in the photographer behind the camera, this is still very much at play even though the the tenets of the technology have changed. Another important concept to think about with the tourist gaze. So if you think of the tourist gaze as being the primary object of power, as giving the tourist behind the camera a, a means to photograph and produce a visual product in terms of what they see when they are looking at a space that is unfamiliar to them and it's unfamiliar because of course they're a tourist in this location so they're taking photos of things that are strange to them that are novel to them that are interesting to them if you think about your own experiences with travel and it doesn't even have to be travel to a particularly far away place from where you're located traveling to a new spot whether you know in COVID times we're not traveling very far any of us Um, but if you can remember back prior to the pandemic if you had ever gone somewhere new whether it's a far away to you or a place that's you know kind of close by that you hadn't been to before a common practice is to take a picture of it to take a picture of something that you see there that is interesting or new or novel. So the other the other characteristic though of photography that I think is important to think about is that the tourist photographer is operating with the tourist gaze, but then the photographic subject who is being photographed by the tourist photographer, they are also operating in reverse of this power dynamic, right? So this is what's known in tourist photography studies as the reverse gaze. So the reverse gaze means that the person looking back at the camera, uh, they also have an experience of tourism that is different from that of the tourist. It's, if you think about like a good example would be if you've ever gone to a living history site. So a place, if you are close to uh, the town from, you know, from where I'm teaching at the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton, there's a living history site here called King's Landing. And it is a very kind of uh, familiar orchestration of historical performance in that there are, historical buildings that have been preserved and reconstructed. There's historical objects. And there's also people who work at the living history site who are dressed in historical costume and who pretend to be, you know, a part of this historical settler, so-called pioneer village, right? And the people who participate in these types of living history spectacles, really, I mean, they're they're doing a job, so they're being paid to work at this at this place. and tourists will often take photos of them, right? And so if you're taking a photo of somebody who's working at King's Landing or another historical site, like there's lots of different examples of this type of living history museum. They are also participating in this reverse gaze experience with the tourist photographer. So they're being photographed in their historical costume, but you're also photographing, a person who is playing a role, right? It's a person who is pretending to be part of this historical village. There are other examples, and I think one example that I'd like to draw your attention to this week is an experience of the reverse gaze that I think is a little bit more insidious than the one that I've just described. So the example that I want to use is a quasi-documentary film entitled Cannibal Taurus uh, that was filmed in 1988 by the Australian director and cinematographer Dennis O'Rourke. I've assigned Cannibal Tours* uh, for your viewing this week, and I think it's a good example of what I'm talking about in terms of this tension between the Taurus gaze and the reverse gaze. The film is, of course, a film, so it's another type of visual representation and it borrows really heavily from ethnographic filmmaking, which was a common practice uh, by anthropologists and other uh, other scholars and researchers beginning, um, you know, in the 20th century, in the early 20th century when uh, they these ethnographers, you know, primarily European descendant scholars for the most part would travel and uh, use their cameras, use both photographic cameras, so still photography and moving film, moving image photography. Uh, photography so filmmaking and ethnographic filmmaking to document what they were seeing so part of the anthropological drive to undertake ethnography which is in anthropological terms you know the study of people they these anthropologists and filmmakers We're using screen photography and moving film images for very specific reasons that are not disconnected to what Yuri observes when he's talking about the tourist gaze, right? So again, it's a a use of the camera, whether it's a film camera or a still photography camera, to take pictures and take images of things that show difference, of things that are unusual of things that do not exactly match up with European descendant culture in the case of anthropologists because what they were looking to document was difference. And so Cannibal Tours, it is not this type of a film. It's a modern film. It's a contemporary film, really, even though it's from 1988 in terms of filmmaking, it would be understood as a more contemporary film product. So while O'Rourke is borrowing from the types of ethnographic representation that's more common with early 20th century films, it is also a commentary on the nature of modernity, the nature of tourist exchange, and uh, the experience of the reverse gaze. That's really the most, one of the most important parts of the film. So the film takes place uh, as O'Rourke documents uh, eco-tourists, so European and American tourists, we are traveling from village to village in Papua New Guinea along the Sepik river. And most of the villages in the film are inhabited by indigenous, Ilatmul people. And so what you see when you watch the film is that the tourists are kind of participating in, you know, really commonplace tourist experiences. So they're doing things like they're photographing the villages. They are photographing the villagers sometimes with permission, sometimes without permission. Um, They are selling things and trading things like cigarettes and commercial products for local handcrafts, things like wood carvings and baskets. They're trying to bargain with the villagers to uh, get a better price on these handcrafts. And the film also, you know, references historical colonial Uh, experiences and violence in in Papua New Guinea. So this would have been between, say, the 1880s and 1914, where uh, O'Rourke shows part of the era of German colonialism in this part of the world and some of the impacts of colonialism through uh, historical photographs as well. So you also get these black-and-white historical colonial photographs to kind of uh, contextualize the documentary. I'm just going to read a little bit from Dennis O'Rourke's description on the making of the film cannibal tours he says to explain my filmmaking process is a bit like a cat chasing its tail in any case i confess that how i actually make my films is a complete mystery to me i can sit with you looking at a film which has my name on it and gaze in wonderment ...at what is transpiring on the screen, but I certainly do not think the author is exactly the same person who is me watching the film. The act of creating a documentary film is one of synthesis upon synthesis. Every stage of the filmmaking process, from imagining through filming through all the stages of editing, becomes the modifier of previous stages in both direct and subtle ways. And for it to work, the filming process must be an ordeal, to con- to- an ordeal of contact with reality... I must place myself within the perceived reality of what I am attempting to film in order to discover the authenticity of people and places and to fix my emotional perspective within a social and political process, which is not academic I believe that documentary films should not exist outside of the reality which they are attempting to depict. The magic of the documentary film is that one can start to create with no idea of the direction of the narrative and concentrate all thinking on the present moment and thing. It is important when you make a film not to be rational but instead to trust your emotions and intuition. In fact, you have to be irrational because when you try to be rational, the true meaning and the beauty of any idea will escape you. Specifically on the the film Cannibal Tours, he says... Cannibal Tours is certainly a documentary film, but it is also a fiction because it is an artifact, that is, someone made it. The making of art is after all only artifice, playing with the undifferentiated mess of life to get a little product. But this can be both the meaning and the subject matter. In a profound sense, the viewer and the subject can be one and the same. We can be embarrassed to be inside and outside the frame and the process of filmmaking simultaneously. The experience of self-recognition and embarrassment is the subject matter. In Cannibal tours, we can recognize in these Western tourists both the hopelessness of their experience and we can recognize ourselves. We can also recognize, at least subconsciously, the tourist's implicit understanding that anyone who will see them in the film shares their sense of hopelessness in the face of such a futile search for utopian meaning, which is their tourist experience. It must be stated that most of the theoretical ideas only registered with me when interested people brought them to my attention long after the film was completed. Firstly, I would like to quote from a review of my film by Professor Dean McCannell. Professor Professor McCannell wrote the seminal book The Taurus, which was first published in 1976. I read it only in 1989, when he sent me a copy after he had seen my film. I have often speculated, what if I had read this wonderful book before I made Cannibal Tours? Would the film be better or worse? In keeping with my philosophy of filmmaking, I am sure perversely sure that it was better to read the book after the film was made. This is part of what Professor McCannell wrote. And so this is a uh, quoting from this professor. It is disheartening that any group of human beings simply caught in the eye of the camera could appear to be so awkward and in such bad faith. It is to Aruk's great credit that he does not simply leave us with these disturbing images. The film quietly provides answers to the questions it raises, and to do this, Aruk goes to a psychoanalytical level. Aruk concludes this portion of his analysis by reflecting on the process of the tourist gaze and tourist exchange that he documents in this film. And, you know, he's connecting this very directly to histories of German colonialism in the region too, as I said. So he says, I suppose it's an improvement on 100 years ago when the villagers thought the Europeans were from another planet. And I can see that the voyeuristic experience in tourism works both ways. On the Sepik River, where tourism is a relatively new phenomenon, the natives still do experience the thrill of looking at the tourist. It is for this that the film begins with a self-composed epigram. There is nothing so strange in a strange land as the stranger who comes to visit it. We'll pick up more on these themes in the lecture this week. As always, I want to thank you for your attention in this class and on these topics. Have a great week.